like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I'll be looking at his 1964 short story, Novelty Act. Now, Novelty Act is one of a couple, a handful of stories published in 1963 and 1964 that really lead to some of the novels of of the mid-1960s, such as The Three Stigmata Palmer Elders. In this case, the theme here is very similar to what we see in The Simulacrum. So, and we've already looked at The Simulacrum in previous episodes, so it's going to be hard to to avoid thinking about the simulacrum as we talk about this story, but it's important to to look at this as its own work, and um, it's it's in the collected stories because it does stand up as its own work. There are a handful of stories that Dick published that that really were just rough drafts of certain parts of of novels, and those aren't included in the collected collected stories. Um, this one does stand on its own, so that's why it's in in the collected stories. It was published in Fantastic in February of 1964. And if you don't have Fantastic from 1964, you can find it in Minority Report and Other Classic Stories by Philip K. Dick, um, which is the fourth volume of Dick's collected stories. So anyways, let me just jump into the plot and, and then we'll talk about the themes. This is a story really about social control, about ideology, about pop culture. And of course, in this age of reality television and, and, and competitions like that, it, it's interesting to, to think about how much Dick imagined the kind of the pop culture of, of the early 21st century in this, in this story and in the simulacrum. So we're, we're set in the community of Abraham Lincoln communal apartment buildings. Uh, Dick really like this idea of people in the future living in these communal apartment buildings. You know, in a sense, it's it's something almost democratic where we have these homeowners associations maybe or uh, they're a little bit different. These are like tenant associations, right? And of course, I think that's a good thing if tenants can organize and protest rent, protest conditions, get landlords to improve the apartment buildings and things like that. But Dick almost always sees these things as oppressive uh, institutions of social control. It goes all the way back to his novel, The Man Who Japed, uh, where he has this idea of, or even in, I think, in Solar Lottery and other stories like that, this idea that your lease is so important to your social standing. And so, you know, you're willing to eat a lot of shit in order to maintain your your standing in your in your apartment or can maintain your lease. But here we have people living in this kind of communal, these communal apartments. It's called the Abraham Lincoln Apartments. And they're preparing for their All Souls Night meeting. And at that meeting, they will discuss the affairs of the building and also put on talent shows in hopes of attracting the attention of White House talent scouts. If one of their acts is chosen, that act will get to perform for the first lady, Nicole Thibodeau, who everyone refers to familiarly as Nicole. And so this meeting has these two functions. One is to actually deal with the aspects that direct democracy required 
in a these kind of small um, face-to-face settings these tennis associations but then it's also to try to show off their talent and to get white house the white house interested so that's kind of a way that people have social mobility is to perform before the first lady if you're the winner you get to do that so the chairman of this association of tenants is donald klugman he's also there's also the sky pilot a type of religious leader patrick doyle who start the proceedings for the night so it's like the political leader and then the religious leader of the community start the proceedings so they jump right into the performances and so the first performance the first act is the Fettelschmuller girls singing a song this the, so these shows end up making most of the evening's activities but there's some business to attend to as well mr stone for instance is leading a movement to dismantle the system of public education used within the community in favor of using outside schools kind of i guess charter schools are are being pushed upon this community um, now ian duncan is grumbling in his room he has missed the meeting but he's anxious about his examination which is mostly an examination about the history of and politics of the united states he watches television and sees nicole speaking to him through her on-air programming right kind of like a, a yancey figure almost you know talking to the people and, and shaping their ideology and their thoughts he thinks about his own act which is performed with his brother, where they play classical music with jugs. He was once able to perform for a talent scout, a White House talent scout, and but he, I guess he didn't go to the White House, so he always regrets that he didn't do better at that show. Stone finally arrives with his test results, and Ian, and although Ian had tried to fail on purpose, just so he could leave Abraham Lincoln, he gets his deposit back. He wants to get his deposit back and relocate to Mars, but Stone passes him, which means he gets to stay in the Abraham Lincoln building. So these tests are ways to keep people, uh, you know, in the building, right? And that's how you prove you can stay is by passing these tests. And he wanted to fail. He wanted to get leave. He wanted to leave this building with all its bad memories. And and these are, these are things that are described in more detail, I think, in the simulacrum. But, you know, he wants to relocate, but he passed, so he has to stay in uh, the Abraham Lincoln communal apartments. So next we meet Al Duncan, who is Ian Duncan's brother, and he works at Jalopy Jungle Number 3, which sells barely legal interplanetary ships that usually can get the rider to Mars, but these are kind of like one-way junkers. He sells these jalopies with the aid of a mechanical papalula, which is a replica of an extinct Martian species. This papalu is able to make its sales pitch directly to the mind of the customers. So we got a little bit of consumer politics here, something Dick obsessed a lot about in his early work, the, the kind of the, the, the pressure to consume by advertising and things like that. You see it certainly in sales pitch. Here, the, the ads are directed telepathically right into the mind of customers. And also you have like the cheap used car salesman with the over-the-top advertising. It's, it's, it's rather fun what he does here, I think. Um, again, this is all replicated in, in the simulacrum. So Ian eventually visits his brother, and since he did not fail the test, he needs to make the best of his situation. So he thinks, let's get the music group back together. Maybe we can have luck in, in attracting White House scouts. So maybe that'll be a way to kind of change our lives. Meanwhile, Doug Klugman muses on Ian Duncan's application to have his brother appear in the talent show. At first, he hesitates because Al is not a member of the commun commune, only, only, um, only Ian is. 
But the sky pilot convinces him to let them try and let them put on their display. They, they care about trying to get White House scouts' attention. So Al proposes they use the Papulu to win over the talent scout. This would be no worse and on a much smaller scale than what Nicole does with her propaganda on the television. So there's not really this moral compulsion over it. In fact, there, the suggestion is that Nicole is the whole propaganda engine and the whole use of the Nicole is a, is a form of mind control over the entire people of, of the society. Anyways, the plan works. And after the performance, news comes that the Duncan brothers will be performing at the White House for Nicole Thibodeau. Stone goes to the sky pilot to confess his sin of passing Ian Duncan, despite Ian Duncan actually having failed the test. A new test will need to be administered. He is moved to do this because of his concern that the Duncan brothers cheated to get a White House performance, and he feels resentment over their success. So this, this is all complicated by the fact that Ian Duncan shouldn't even be a member anymore, but now he's, he's got his, his act, which is only, he's the only member of the community, so they can't use Ian's membership, or sorry, they can't use Al's membership as the foundation for justifying this. So at first was just a, a minor oversight, no, no big deal passing this guy, is now kind of a profound crisis because the, the, the whole representation of this community in, at the White House is, is based on a lie. He also resents, resents that, he's, that it's the Duncan brothers who finally get the attention of the White House. Of course, they, they cheated as well. So there's a lot of cheating going on in this story. The Duncan brothers are preparing the music that they will perform for Nicole. Meanwhile, Lonnie Luke, who's Al Duncan's boss at the Jalopy Jungle, urges them not to do it at all. He has long resented Nicole and her attempts to suppress his Jalopy business. They mention that Nicole still looks good despite being in office 70 years. And there's, there's a question of how is Nicole able to be kept so young and fine for so long. And this is all explained much more adequately and sufficiently in the simulacrum. But here it's just hinted at. So the Duncan brothers eventually arrive at the White House and an organizer asks them to add a folk tune into their program. The Duncan brothers agree to do this and it makes sense. They're doing, they're playing on jugs. So don't do classical music only, add some folk music. He also asks about the Papalu, this mind control device. The brothers describe it as a good luck totem, although it's also part of the show because it dances and it's, you know, of course there's concern of mind control in the White House and, and but the Duncan brothers tried to talk their way around it. Not long after the performance begins, though, the Papalu bites Nicole. Al Duncan knows immediately that it was being controlled by Luke, who wanted to have revenge on Nicole. The Duncan brothers are then arrested and orders are sent out for Luke's arrest. Nicole confesses that she's an actor, the latest of several who have played the first lady. The real rulers are somewhere else and Nicole and the president. So they... It's, yeah, the way it works in, it's all described in much more detail in the simulacrum, but you vote for the president and the president who's elected then has to marry Nicole Thibodeau. And the first lady is perpetual, is permanent, but the, the president changes. So there's like a kind of a marriage swap every four years or so. But Nicole Thibodeau is an actress and she's always changing too to remain always young and, and hot. So anyways, after she confesses this, the brothers have their memory erased and they'll lose any memory of their big success in reaching the White House, as well as, as you know, even their own relationship within it, which, with each other. And it's kind of a sad, touching moment where the brothers have to say their goodbyes to each other, as well as lose any memory of, their, of the, the greatest success of their life. Even though that was based on a lie. 
So Ian Duncan is back at the Abraham Lincoln apartment after the mine wipe. He's disoriented due to that. And he worries about missing another All Souls meeting. He returns to his home and watches Nicole on the television. An old man approaches him at the window, telling him that he is Looney Luke and he's fleeing to Mars. He'll take Ian and his brother Al with him, although neither remembers the other. And they, they, they all forget each other. But they agree and they enter the jalopy. So they, they go off to Mars together in the end anyways, but they don't remember each other and they've lost so much uh, of their relationship. But they get the chance to rebuild their relationship, I guess. So a bit of a bittersweet ending to this story. So anyways, analytically, what can we say? Uh, so much of this has been recycled into the simulacrum, and we've already talked about the simulacrum in, in great, great detail. But actually, some ideas are, of course, developed more in the novel, and some ideas actually are developed a little bit more in the story, I think. Like, I... As I, I think there's a little bit more actually on Ian. It's, there's, there's greater focus on Ian and Al's relationship in this story. And I think that's the kind of the heart of this story, which, you know, the simulacrum is such a weird novel anyways that we've seen. It's like so many disconnected ideas kind of splattered together. It, it seems it's just like a, a Pollock painting almost of, of ideas. So in that way, I think I actually like the story a little bit more than, than the simulacrum in the way it deals with the whole pop culture aspect and the, the Duncan brothers relationship. Um, it's just a tighter narrative. The simulacrum is packed with so many ideas that there's really no room to develop them, them all. You know, reading novelty act before the simulacrum actually, I think makes the novel a little bit easier to, to digest. But anyway, so let's start with the political situation. So the heart here is of course the facade of democratic life through the all souls meeting held in the abraham lincoln communal apartments we have this idea of direct democracy local direct democracy and kind of you know it seems most important things are handled at the local level and then you have the symbolic leader of nicole thibodeau and the president who she marries every four years but nicole says at the end that there's real rulers behind the scenes so it's you know how much power is actually in the local communities is not clear everyone lives in these buildings and you know, some people live outside, I guess, but, you know, it's not quite clear how many actually live in these communal apartments. Some people, of course, are off on Mars and other places, but they do seem to be the major social unit, the most important social unit. It is from these meetings that people get their chance to visit the White House and see Nicole and perform for her, which is the, the central goal of most people's lives. There is something to the communal life described here that makes it sound livable. People seem to know each other. They share their talents. They cooperate to a certain degree. They, they look out for each other's interests. They enjoy each other's creative lives. And even if people don't go to the White House, you know, they still see the talents of the other members of the community and people are encouraged to develop these talents. I think that's there's some value to that as a, as a kind of a social unit. It's a bit forced, but, you know, and some people aren't completely happy in these situations. But by and large, I think most people seem content with it. It's not like a dystopian future by any stretch of the imagination. There are some things that perhaps are lost though. Uh, the White House seems to monopolize all the culture um, and only amateurs are behind. And I don't know, maybe there's something to that too. Maybe, you know, we are too much bound into celebrities and, and you know, we think so few people, people can reach the heights of fame and stardom that we don't always appreciate amateurs as much. You know, of course, if you do go to local bars and see local performers, you you might be tied into that a little bit more. But there are a lot of great, talented people out there who don't get their their five minutes of fame. Other things, though, like 
this cultural and this creativity gets is so important that other things that these medians have to deal with, like the education of children, gets set aside and they aren't they're kind of secondary to these meetings. So is there actual politics going on at the local level or something that's a bit doubtful? The mental lives of the residents is controlled as well through the examinations of history and the regime and the confessionals led by the sky pilot, who is very much like a Catholic priest in that people go and confess to him. People still vote for president, but we learn at the end that the first lady is just an actor and the real people in power are this unelected council. From the state's perspective, the communal apartments are ideal for social control and establishing a social contract that allows them to rule. But at the same time, it's not clear what they do. You know, it's, do they actually affect people's lives? So there's actually a very, very interesting political system here. Again, we see in the simulacrum the bad side of this more clearly with... Um, uh, with a lot of the subplots in that story dealing with the odious nature of actual rule on the planet. Now, the evidence is that the government would seem to prefer everyone living in the communal apartments. We see the harsh attitude of the government towards Looney Luke and his jalopy sales business, which is outside of the communal apartments. Luke, and to a lesser extent, Al Duncan, give us a taste of life outside of the walls of the communal apartments as well. His business feeds off the unwanted and the excess population who have nowhere else to go but go on to Mars. And he actually provides the one-way cheap and broken down jalopies as a way to get off Earth. And there's no intention of these people of ever returning. And in the end, these characters who can't fit in and have been basically punished for, you know, the biting of Nicole. They have nowhere to go but, but Mars. So again, the frontier here becomes less about remaking oneself and, and rebuilding a world, but... Uh, just where no where people who can't make it on earth must go and i guess there's some value to that as well so but still the frontier is here but i think it's changing in dick's mind and the nature of the frontier really is different in his 60s work compared to his 1950s work so to the interest we might want to sketch out a geography of dick's world you know i think there's a big gap between how the frontier is examined in the 50s and how it's examined in the, in the 60s so at the end of the story he is luke escapes um, fearing that the state will eventually suppress him in his business. He does get his little moment. He gets his bite back at the system, literally, by biting Nicole through the palupa, palula. Now, both his escape and the bite at Nicole are small and ultimately meaningless acts of resistance, though, but they constitute a type of, of what we can call an infrapolitics, right? The idea that... that you know, you, you, you bite back at the system in small ways, right? So the infrapolitics is the idea that there's politics that you can't see, right? Like infrared, you can't see. Infrapolitics are politics you can't see. They're the day-to-day -day, day -day resistance. It's when the peasant bows down to the noble and farts. That, that kind of resistance, right? Individual acts don't matter much, but if enough people do it, it starts to break down the system, right? Or the, you know, one person drinking in public to spite the police you know, it doesn't matter much, but if everyone starts to do it, it builds up a culture of disrespect for policing and, and, and you know, has a more significant effect. So that, that's essentially the theory of infrapolitics. If you're interested in it, you got to read the work of James Scott, who went at length, just, you know, spent his whole career really describing infrapolitics in Southeast Asia. Anyways, the system of control here is incredibly voluntary, though. It's, it's done by making the symbol of the state something that people could love or be in love with, especially. I mean, they... They pick a, a figure who can be motherly to children 
um, but glamorous for women, something to strive for for women, and then a figure that all the men want to essentially have sex with or, or love um, erotically. So the, Nicole is something that everyone can love. And of course, she's chosen. She's an actress, so she can fit all these roles. So depending on who you talk to, she's either a great leader, a mother, or for the most of the men, a target of sexual desire. And we've talked about this with Simulacrum. All these aspects of her personality are presented to the public through television as well. The result of this is a population of people who want to be loved by Nicole the way they love her. This strange relationship with Nicole is cultivated through the belief that everyone has something that Nicole will enjoy, right? That everyone's talent is something that potentially Nicole will fall in love with and praise. And that's the ultimate goal of people's lives. Everyone believes that someday they'll get chosen to perform at her White House. This is reality television, of course, right? That everyone will get their five minutes of fame, that everyone will, you know, get a chance to proclaim themselves, not to the president necessarily, or to the first lady, but to the, to the public. Now, of course, we now, at the time of recording this, we have a celebrity, uh, celebrity president, Donald Trump. We have a reality television president. And, uh, you know, I don't even know how to begin to think about how Philip K. Dick would have thought about a Donald Trump presidency. Uh, I don't know if he would have been fully surprised. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this, I think, um, when we look at maybe now wait for last year, for instance, where you have this kind of buffoonish but essential president. But, uh, you know, it went farther. It's not just that we we engage in reality television in order to impress the president. It's actually our president is a product of reality television. Um, the question is, can celebrities be good good leaders? Can pop culture be an actual path to to upward mobility? I mean, you know, or, or YouTube, for instance. I mean, it's kind of interesting how not many YouTubers, of course, make a living, do that, make it big. But, you know, a lot, you know, a fair number do. And these are people who probably wouldn't be famous if not for YouTube. And so there is a bit of social mobility worked into contemporary pop culture. Um, of course, reality TV does find talented people that maybe wouldn't have been discovered otherwise. So maybe there's a little bit of upward mobility in it. This is, um, there's actually a, a episode of Black Mirror about this essential idea. It's called, I think it's called A Million Credits or something. And it's about these people who are stuck producing energy on these bikes all day, but a few can escape through kind of reality television. Now their escape is kind of limited. Some of them just become like porn stars, but they do escape the bike. So there's a bit of upward mobility worked into that. Of course, I think when it comes down to it, I, I don't think celebrities make good leadership, especially actors, because, you know, what we see in an actor is often a facade, right? We, it's, we don't know what they're, they are beneath the surface. Someone can act as a good leader. It doesn't make him a good leader necessarily, but maybe good leadership is a form of performativity to a certain degree, right? I mean, part of the problem with Donald Trump is that he doesn't play the role of president very well, right? And you know, had he, if he just stops tweeting, if he just, you know, acts like a president a little bit better, he might be more effective. So maybe good leadership really does come down to acting and performing. That's the reason I'm not a good leader, perhaps, is I'm not the best at performance. So, you know, maybe the best leaders will be actors. I, I don't know. It, but it's something to think about. It's something to 
work out in our heads, especially in this era where we have reality TV presidents and a lot of celebrities running for office. So I'll leave it at that. That's Novelty Act. So um, the next episode, we'll be looking at a short story called Orpheus with Clay Feet. That's a story about time travel and culture and cultural creativity, and, and it's, it's, it's rather fun. Like a lot of the 1960s stories, Dick's having fun. I mean, there are serious themes under the surface of them, but a lot of them are fun, certainly fun stories. So Orpheus with Clay Feeds fits into that, of course. So again, thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back next time with another short story um, by Philip K. Dick. Um, see you then. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.